Hello, I'm Jess Dandy and this is PodPath, the SongPath podcast, where conversations about mental health allow us to explore creative and restorative ways of connecting to ourselves, each other and the world around us. I got to the top of that and I just looked around and I could see all these hills and Derwent Water itself, which has to be one of the most beautiful uh, of the lakes. And I just felt like a, a huge cloud in my mind lifted and that I had a, a tremendous feeling of space and calmness. And also I felt really good about the fact I'd walked up the hill, even though it was quite a modest one. And um, I didn't stop there. I thought I looked at the next hill, Bleabury Fell, and I thought, oh, well, that's sunny that see a couple of miles away. I'll go up that as well. And it was like something in my mind switched on. And from that point to this, now in 2020 so we're talking about uh, 38 years I've been an avid hill walker Martin Roscoe is one of the UK's best loved pianists equally at home in concerto solo recital chamber music and song he's a regular at Wigmore Hall on BBC Radio 3 and with the UK's leading orchestras a pianist who and I quote both thinks and offers full-blooded playing of breadth and depth, who makes you properly listen and stays by your side until the end. It is that generosity of companionship Martin offers which has made him such a wonderful presence in the world of music-making for over 40 years. But more specifically and recently here, in Walking With Us on the Song Path, we owe our glistening theme music to Martin, Debussy's Reflections in Water, which he played on last year's Songpath, along with a host of other wonderful pieces, so beautifully in response to the quicksilver meniscus of the Levin estuary. He's also a passionate hill walker, and it's that passion, the tang of height, as Nan Shepherd referred to it, that we'll be exploring today. Hi Martin, thanks for, for joining us today on the Songpath podcast. My pleasure. Um, maybe we could start with you just explaining to our listeners what your involvement in Songpath was last year. Of course, uh, meeting you and, and us uh, working together a couple of times, and you had this amazing idea of Songpath, which I was found very exciting. And then you, you know, structured the whole thing, and I came along and played the piano, various solo things, and also with you and also with the choir and uh, I went on all walk which I uh, enjoyed enormously and I think it's uh, it's such an amazing idea and so the idea behind it as well the benefits for us physically and mentally of being in nature taking exercise and also music and the arts in general I mean um, all those things sort of forming something different but special and a, a tremendous experience for all of those who were there and you know I mean you were very generous with the, your you were asking my advice a lot about pieces and uh, what to play what what would go with what and so on so I had some feeling of my own input into it as well which was wonderful so it'd be great to do more when time allows <laughs> Absolutely. But obviously, um, you're no stranger to, to being in nature. And that was a sort of another reason why you became involved, not just because you're a, a great pianist and could play that fiendish 
list that I'd somehow <laughs> linked to the Levin estuary. But you've talked about, and very kindly on the day, also talked about the importance of hill walking yeah. for your mental health. Um, maybe you could elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I, um, I think when I was 29, I was on holiday in the Lake District uh, on my own, unexpectedly. My first marriage had broken down and um, I... Uh, I found I'd got a holiday cottage which had belonged to a friend, actually. And I, I thought, well, I'm going to go there. Um, there was no piano, so I couldn't play the piano. And I found myself having absolutely loved the Lake District for ever since I was like 10 or 11 when I first came, when my mum brought me up. Uh, but I, I never walked up the hills much. I, I, I wasn't a particularly active child uh, in terms of um, exercise. So I found myself on my own. The weather was amazing. And the house that I was staying in had a complete set of Wainwrights on the shelf in the dining room there. And I started to read them and I thought, do you know, I think I quite fancy going and doing one of these on my own tomorrow. And um, I, I read up the route and I've always loved maps and I knew the Lake District maps like the back of my hand anyway. So I decided to go up Waller Crag. It's uh, right beside Derwent Water. And I got to the top of that and I just looked around and I could see all these hills and Derwent Water itself, which has to be one of the most beautiful of the lakes. And I just felt like a, a huge cloud in my mind lifted and that I had a, a tremendous feeling of space and calmness. And also I felt really good about the fact I'd walked up the hill, even though it was quite a modest one. And I didn't stop there. I thought I looked at the next hill, Bleabury Fell, and I thought, well, that's only that see a couple of miles away. I'll go up that as well. And it was like something in my mind switched on. And from that point to this now in 2020, so we're talking about 38 years, I've been an avid hill walker. And um, I'm also a great one for uh, lists and uh, ticking things off lists and collecting. So I started to keep logs of what I'd done. And I also started to walk in Scotland, which is a much more ambitious project. And obviously you've got further distances, bigger hills and so on. And I absolutely love the Scottish hills as well now. So it's been a very important part of my life from many points of view, physically, because I think I'm a lot fitter now than I would have projected to have been. I think if I'd carried on with the lifestyle I had up to that point when I was 29. And also mentally, I, I, I get a huge amount out of it. Even during this lockdown that we've been experiencing, I've been going out and walking, not up big hills or anything because there aren't any adjacent to where I live here in the lakes now. But I, I've mostly, I think I, I've coped pretty well mentally with the the lockdown but in the early stages one or two, once or twice I woke up feeling very low and thinking oh this is just such a disaster which it is of course and um, from many points of view but as soon as I sort of forced myself to get out put my boots on get out of the house and walk in the countryside I immediately felt better we've been very fortunate in the lockdown that the weather's been so extraordinary here but every day for 60 days now, I've been out for between 5 and 13 miles. And it's I've got tremendous benefit from it. And I, I want to sort of put that message out and help other people to find the same solace, excitement, imagination in the beauty of the countryside. And it doesn't have to be the Lake District or Scotland. I mean, you can find it anywhere in the UK 
outside a city, I think. I mean, even within a city, there are beautiful parks, greenery, birds singing. So uh, that's that's how I came to it and uh, and how it's become such an important part of my life. And also, uh, you know, I can think about music a lot when I'm out walking on my own. I do often walk with other people as well. <laughs> I don't I don't ban them from my walks. But if you are on your own, you you can uh, you can you know think about things, not just music, but things in general in a much more constructive and positive way than if you're uh, sitting inside, maybe. Yeah, it sounds like when you when you go out on your walk, almost the the same experience that you're having in the outer landscape is happening in your inner landscape. You talk about this idea yeah. of broadening your your vista, having more space, seeing things from a different perspective. That's right, absolutely. Uh, there are so many things. If you stay inside a lot of the time now, I mean, there are so many things to entertain one. You know, there's films and TV shows and so on, and uh, radio, uh, recordings of music. I mean, I, I indulge in all those things as well when it's raining outside. <laughs> but if, if it's not, then I'm, I'm very anxious to get out and find the, the path within my own mind uh, and think about every aspect of life. And have you been surprised by just how much is on your doorstep i know you were a sort of intrepid adventurer in terms of your hill walking have you have you felt that you're almost sort of spoilt for choice now that you've actually brought your attention a little bit closer to home um it's interesting i, I often go to the rusland valley which is about three or four miles from here and if i walk directly out of my own front door i've found footpaths and views that i didn't know uh, were there and I've also seen so much wildlife actually especially you know during the lockdown you can hear all the birds and you can see things that you know I, I wasn't expecting to see I've seen adders a couple of times uh grass snakes you name it haven't seen an author yet but I don't think I'm in the right part of the country for that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah th there's always something new that's for sure every day and also, when you were mentioning going out at the age of, of 29, you also mentioned that you were brought to the Lake District by your yeah. mum at a very young yeah. age. And I know we've talked before about just how revelatory that experience was, because you're not originally from Cumbria, you're from Cheshire. Yeah? Um, well, Merseyside, yes. Merseyside. Uh, yeah, the, the Cheshire side of the Mersey. Yeah, that's right. My, my mum and dad had been up to the lakes on holiday once or twice when they were at the university age. And so as soon as my mum, when I was at school, she could uh, go out to work. And, and then she insisted on learning to drive when she was in her 40s. It uh, took a few goes to get the test, but uh, uh, eventually she got there. And the, like almost the first thing she wanted to do was uh, go to the lakes. And my, I've got two older brothers and they were busy doing other things. So I went along. This was in the days before the M6, just before the M6, and took a long time to get up here. But I, I just thought it was an incredibly magical place, and it still is, of course. And the, the National Park has been an incredible thing. I mean, it's a lot busier than it used to be, obviously, but uh, not much has changed, to be honest, since I first started to come. When I got back to Merseyside, I, I remember um, we, we had a map of the lakes, and I used to make a copy of this map. Uh, I, in a larger scale, my own larger scale, with all the colours on the map of Bartholomew's map, it was. I spent hours studying the map. And I've got here a copy of Pouch's The Lakeland Peaks, 
which uh, I asked for as a prize when I was 12 at school. And when it was presented to me on the school stage, they always had somebody who spoke, a guest, a former student at the school or whatever. I can't remember who it was. But he made mention of the fact that it was very unusual to have a 12-year-old boy who wanted a book on climbing hills in the Lake District. He, he was very impressed. And he thought it was a wonderful thing. And it didn't occur to me that anything like that. I was just excited by it And uh, when I was that age. And I suppose now I can look back and say, yeah, it was an unusual but times have moved on anyway. I mean, lots of young kids now come to the likes and love it, of course. I had a friend uh, who came and visited uh, the barn here with her two young children last year. Uh, actually, I, I was away, but that, I said she could come. And she sent me photos of her sort of six and five-year-old, their first visit to Coniston Water and splashing around in the shallows there. And they thought it was just a paradise. And so it is. And can you remember exactly where you went with your mum when you first came to yeah. the Yes, I can. Well, we stayed in Keswick in a hotel which is, has disappeared, actually. The Trawlsa House Hotel, it was. It's now a block of flats. And one of the walks, uh, my mum had read The Herries Chronicles by um, Hugh Walpole, which was quite a fashionable book, uh, written in the 1920s, I think, but set in the 1740s. And it starts off in the hamlet of Watendlath, which is also in uh, Borrowdale, very near Dirtwater. And uh, you go over the famous Ashness Bridge to get to it if you're going by car. But we parked at Rothwick and walked up to Watendlath. And my mum struggled. She'd had an awful bike accident when she was in her 20s and her knees were very badly damaged. They never really recovered. So walking long distances wasn't never a great thing for her. But... At this time, when she took it was a bit of a struggle for my mum to get up this path from Rothwaite to whatever, but I can remember it absolutely vividly. It's the first time I'd ever been in a landscape like that, walking with the trees, the rocks, and it's quite a busy path now. It wasn't particularly in 1962-ish, whenever that was. And I, the other thing I remember doing very well, because we used to have, my mum's car was a, a Mini, one of the first ones, and she was determined to go over Hard Knot and Rhino's passes, <laughs> which she had taken her bike up there before it was a road with my dad. They did a B&B in Wasdale or Santon Bridge or something like that, I think it was. And she remembered this. And of course, during the war, this was before the Second World War, during the war, it was metalled so that the tanks could get up there if necessary. So, so she used to say... Uh, anyway, I can clearly remember going up this absolutely hair-raising road with my mum driving and me having to hold the gear lever in first gear for her. <laughs> Which was... <laughs> but, and, I mean, it's, it's, it's still a hair-raising road, but in 1962, it was about half the width of what it is now. You know, it was uh, cars coming in the opposite direction. There was a lot of reversing going on, I remember. So that was incredibly exciting and, of course, tremendous spectacular scenery and uh, seeing um, Wasdale Head. I remember that particularly. Yeah, Great Gable from Wasdale. Wonderful. Amazing. Yeah. It's interesting that you sort of talk with such excitement about an ostensibly, you know, potentially dangerous experience. And I wonder whether that yeah. is a kind of appeal of the hill walking as well. You know, that, uh, that you are taking a risk in doing what you're doing. 
Well, yes, and, and uh, lots of people have tried to put me off it over the years. And, but I think I've always, almost always behaved fairly sensibly. Uh, I did once come off the top of Blencathra onto Sharp Edge by mistake in the mist uh, and with wet rock. That was a pretty hair-raising thing to do. But um, um, now we've got sat-nav on the phone. I mean, you, you wouldn't make that mistake, of course. You know, I, I obey the usual rules. You tell someone where you're going so that if they don't hear from you by a certain time then yeah there's, there's always an element of risk but i mean you know we can't just avoid every single risk in our lives because you, you you wouldn't be able to get out of bed in the morning if you like that would you? <laughs> but uh i have never done rock climbing i think that's a completely different sort of mentality and huge confidence building potential there i think but you know, I've done scrambling up various places in the lakes that other people might avoid. But I have to say, no, I'm 67 now. I can't quite move as as, uh, as neatly as I used to be able to. So uh, <laughs> I'm a little bit more cautious now. Uh, and the other thing which took a little bit of getting used to is walking up these places on my own. And uh, especially in Scotland, that can be quite daunting, especially in winter. But I've done that. You know, you take your ice axe and crampons and I'm not quite, I haven't got quite the confidence for that that I used to have. I'm not sure I'd be doing that anymore. I had a similar experience walking up near Inverness around Kinloch U a couple of years ago where oh. I was with a group and we were scrambling at pretty high altitudes. And it was so interesting, the psychological kind of flip for me between still having sight of the group and doing that scrambling and then actually I was inevitably going slow and steady at the back <laughs> and uh, losing sight of the group and suddenly uh, yeah, yeah, feeling yeah, yeah. alone in this in this mountain terrain doing an activity that quite frankly I hadn't done a lot of scrambling before and it, it did it transformed the experience but it was a really empowering experience, actually, like yes. being faced with the necessity of negotiating that terrain. You know, there was no there was no room in a way. I mean, we've talked about space at the top of mountains, but actually there was there was no room for my mind to start calculating loads of sort of hypothetical situations. It was just, well, I actually have to put my hand there, put my foot there. And I will move forward. Yes. Um, and actually that that kind of clarity that comes out of necessity when you're climbing or hill walking, whatever you want to call it, I I find it it's something that actually is very therapeutic for me. I don't know whether you feel that kind of necessity as as something that helps you as well. But yeah, I've been in situations like that many times and uh, I, I don't relish the prospect of going back to them, to be honest, now. <laughs> But uh, I can remember it, there's a hill called Sean of Ray, and it's a very remote Monroe. And it's basically not a particularly difficult hill. Uh, but I, I was with the uh, son of friends of mine. So at this point, I was 40 and this guy was 20. And I decided to go up a slightly scrambly route. And there's this sort of rock tower in, in front of us which I'd read up about it and said it's perfectly straightforward. And I can remember this guy, Dominic, said to me, uh, we're not going up there, are we? <laughs> and I said, yeah, so the books say it's, it's quite straightforward. And you get on it, and of course, 
it was it was fine it was absolutely fine but i have to say i would hate the prospect of coming down that's always much more scary to me in, in, in uh, when we're talking about high you know uh, steep ground and i've often got done a sense and thought i've got to find a different way down from here if possible <laughs> How do you um, find that your perception of time is affected by going off on these big adventures? Yeah, it, it is affected. And sometimes, you know, you find that the time you've been walking for four hours and it seems like it's only two, uh, you know, you feel that. But the reverse can also happen. And, uh, you know, if you're perhaps not feeling quite as physically fit as you sometimes do it seems to take a lot longer you look you think oh i've already been walking it feels like i've been walking for about six hours and i've already been doing three uh, that that can happen I, I think as the day if you're doing a full day's walk my usual feeling is that there's an acceleration actually towards the end so you think oh yeah i've actually been walking for six hours it only feels like four that's more often the case which is the best way around really and what what about the time scale that we're confronted with with the geology of these amazing areas? You know, there's a beautiful quote which is um, "Landscape was here long before us; it watched us arrive." I, I wonder how it how it feels to be confronted by the geological time scale in such a sort of bodily and, and visceral way. Well, that's an interesting question, and I have to confess that I've never, ever really thought about it. I mean, I, I, I look at the amazing you know, places like Scarfell Crag, let's say. If you're going up Scarfell Pike, you, you walk under Scarfell Crag just before you get to Mickledore. Uh, I mean, that, you know, it's awe-inspiring, awesome. Some people find it quite frightening. And I, I'm not an expert on geology. I, I, know, I mean, I know what uh, Gabbro rock is like and I know what uh, limestone is like and I think I know what granite is like but uh, you know I'm not a great one for looking at the time scale geologically but I, I, perhaps I should start to think about it a bit more. <laughs> no, not, not necessarily I, su I suppose um, when I refer to kind of bodily and, and visceral I suppose what I'm asking actually goes beyond any sense of being aware of a time scale in terms of specificity it's just this idea that you're sort of engaging on such a physical level with these different terrains and I wonder whether you have a specific terrain that you really like. Uh, yeah uh, I mean in the Lake District there's so many paths and um, I, I absolutely applaud what the park has done to make steps and engineer those because there are some now which are, are sort of almost grassed over but they're still terrific to walk on and you don't get the sort of rubble and the, the visual scarring that you get but uh, if you're in Scotland um, I mean most of the Munros have got paths on them but not all of them. Uh, I've started to do a few of the Corbett's which are the next lot down they're over between 2,500 and 3,000 feet they're often completely pathless and so much harder work, actually. And sometimes, you know, if I've got lots of tussocky grass or heather, I don't relish that very much, to be honest. I find that quite uh, hard work and sometimes, you know, excessively tiring. And, you know, I, I do enjoy walking on a path through vegetative uh, surroundings or also rocky surroundings. I mean, obviously, rocky surroundings are, I think, the, the most awe-inspiring. And do you think that your hill walking has 
directly influenced your music making? I'm not sure. Uh, I, I'm not sure I'm the right person to answer that. Um, it, it, what's quite interesting to me is that uh, I've recently found a couple of CDs. W one was of a, a live Chopin recital I gave at the Beverly Festival in 1999, which was very professionally engineered with no editing at all. And I hadn't heard it for 20 years. And uh, I found it very interesting to listen to my performances from 20 years ago of works which I've been playing recently. And, uh, you know, there are some changes. There's also so many similarities. And also a disc of Brahms, which was edited up, but um, never made it to the outside world. And that was recorded in Cambridge, actually, in West Road in 1997. And I think, yeah, I mean, there are changes. I'm not sure I'm the right person to answer that. You'll have to ask people who've been, you know, I've got quite a lot of close friends who've been hearing me play the piano for the last 40 years. They might be better placed to uh, to comment on that. I will, I will just say this. I think that there's bound to be some development in the playing of someone who has had, as I have had, a very fortunate and full life and a lot of other interests, including hill walking. I think the sort of player who just does nothing but play the piano six hours a day, hmm, not sure the playing develops any, you know, emotionally particularly. I think uh, I can, I'm not going to mention any names, but I can think of some colleagues who I feel that that is like, that they haven't fully fulfilled their talent because they've just been too, for want of a better word, narrow-minded. Uh, and I'm, I'm not using that as a pejorative, just as a, an observation. No, but I mean, it, it really ties in with what you said about Waller Crag, you know, being at the top yeah. of Waller Crag and feeling that something had switched on and feeling a sense of space for other possibilities, other vistas, other perspectives, other experiences, which, yeah. you know, however wonderful playing the piano is, that one activity cannot afford you. Can I just ask one more question? Yes, of course. Yes, of course. On last year's Song Path, you talked about how heavily you've been influenced by Wainwright. And today we've talked about a sort of fascination with maps. And I wondered whether yes. you could talk a little bit about why you think Wainwright is, is so special. And also how you feel that your fascination with, with maps can be sort of transposed onto the actual act of walking and how you navigate the terrain. Right. Uh, well, first of all, about Wainwright, yes. I mean, uh, I when I first became aware of Wainwright, when I was in my teens uh, and 20s, you know, I used to look at these handwritten books and thought they were, I didn't understand that what the fascination was with them at all. I, I thought they were, why do you need that? You know, why don't you just get a map or, or a guidebook or both, you know? So that was a bit of a revelation to me when I was at Ted's Cottage, just to read the books and of course there's a sort of very dry sense of humor as well uh, uh, people say he was just dry when you met him uh, Wainwright but I think there's a there's quite a cheeky sense of humor but his story is not that dissimilar from mine in a, a way because he was uh, from a, a very very humble background much more than mine but he was a bright guy and he worked hard at school and he, he eventually got a job uh, 
in the accounts department at the town hall in Blackburn and he was able to afford a holiday and he came up he decided he would come to the lakes and his experience was like he was older than I was when I first came to the lakes I think he was about 21 or something but he had this incredible revelatory experience of, of the beauty of it and that became his passion uh, in life and to write those books and of course they are of their kind they are masterpieces and he was also fascinated with maps and the, his books are full of handwritten maps i didn't know any of that when i was doing my copies of maps when i was 12 I'd no, i wasn't aware of wainwright at all at that point but to be able to look at a map and then look at where you are and find what is on the map is a tremendous thing. It's a, a wonderful, and nowadays it's even better because you can have the map on your phone. And of course it, it can pinpoint exactly where you are. So, and you look at the map, the contour lines, the detail on maps now is amazing. You know, every wall and fence in every field is on your map. But I've stopped carrying physical maps around. I still look at them at home and I've got them so on. But, uh, and they're a tremendous thing, um, as are Wainwright's books. And I, I actually, when I discovered Wainwright books, I did a sort of typical Martin Roscoe thing. I decided to read every word of every one of them. <laughs> and I did that two or three times because I found them very entertaining as well as tremendously informative. You know. I've been speaking to Martin today about his fascination with maps and how, as a young boy, he loved to copy them in minute detail, trying to replicate the exact contours, the colours, the triangulation points, the fields, the footpaths, the bodies of water, the follies, the castles, the churches, the bridleways. As I'm saying all of these things, a topography is coming into my head. Images of those things from my own experience fragments of maps, imaginings of the adventures that Martin has described to me today. And I know that those fragments, those pieces of my own jigsaw puzzle, will overlap with yours to some extent, but will ultimately remain my own jumbled, imagined cartography. In the first two episodes of Podpath, I spoke to psychotherapist Rufus Harrington about just how central journeying is to the human condition and how our psychological experiences can be interpreted and better understood through topographical metaphors, prisms of landscapes, mountains, obstacles, paths, routes lost and found, through which to see better the potential of our own lives. Dante's Inferno begins in the dark wood, the sheer primal terror of seemingly unmappable uncertainty, life irredeemably obscured. Frodo and Sam must climb Mount Doom, casting the One Ring, the concretization of all that is dark about the world, into its volcanic fires. Orpheus must journey through the Elysian fields down into the underworld, down into what we might now see as the cave of the unconscious, to recover the beloved, or what he is projected to be so. I love the taxonomy of maps. I love the clarity, the order, the attention to detail, the way in which I feel helped on my real journey by a sense of being enmeshed in the care, attention and exactitude which has gone into the creation of an ordnance survey map, for example. Even the soft creaking sound of its unfolding, 
the feel of its waterproof paper on my fingertips, the irritation of fitting it into a map holder. All of this is an automatic, learnt, almost ritualised reassurance. The psychologist and trauma expert Bessel van der Kolk proposes, and I quote, that people carry an internal map of who they are in relationship to the world, that the brain continually forms maps of the world, maps of what is safe and what is dangerous. That becomes our memory system. But it's not a known memory system like that of verbal memories, end quote. This cartography of experience, lived and ongoing, is not something an OS map can offer. Legend, from the Latin legere, to read, a map legend to read the landscape, but also a life legend to read our inner landscapes, to find narrative arcs, meaning, complication, resolution, shape, pattern, interest, to become literate of our own lives. By telling these stories, by finding our way through, looking out for the golden thread within the labyrinth. Psychologists talk about our schema, those stories deeply embedded, buried in our own experience, which underpin what happens on the surface, become our inadvertent means of navigation, the myths and legends of our own lives. What happens if we excavate those underground happenings? How might we create maps of experience, wiser mind maps, if you like, which integrate all parts of our experience, which add new routes and combine and revise the more well-trodden paths? Is there also a way to bring back the magic of the imagination, transforming space, allowing it to hold at once all times, all places, all lives? The Cumbrian poet Neil Curry a fellow songpath traveller, begins his poetic and lived pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela with a poem called New Maps for Old. While once they were allowed some flighty bits on the side, maps now look to be meaning at its most monogamous. No cherubs, no here be dragons, no galleons tilting in the bay. Holding an increase in fact to equal an increase in truth, they ignore the traveller's need to tell the lie of the land. The traveller here seems to be caught between a need for security, clarity, fixity, and the call of something far more nebulous, rhapsodic, amorphous, the lie of the land, our very boundaries pre-empting the irresistible act of crossing. Losing ourselves, abandoning ourselves, throwing caution to the wind, an unmapping of sorts, but a way down into a deeper kind of tethering. So this week, I'm inviting you to draw your own maps, to create your own legends. You could take a starting point, a very limited area of land, perhaps an area in which you grew up, for example, you could map your experiences onto that topography. The formalised consistent scale we associate with a standardised map will quite quickly become redundant, and that's okay. This is a different kind of navigation. So which places or sites are particularly charged with resonance? What route did you take to school? You might remember a car journey you took with your parents on holiday. Does Bogner Regis therefore somehow bleed into the white lines of the school playground? 
or the smell of museums sits in the corner of your childhood dining room. What about your first trip on an aeroplane? Where did you go? And maybe you just can't fathom the curveball significance of a blackberry bush at the end of the lane, a graphite-stained pencil case, the smell of your first exercise book, the grass on the football pitch, one single leaf of grass, and the miraculous viscosity of its ephemeral dew, how a particular cricket ball felt in your hand, and the red stain that it left, your first tooth that fell out, and where you were when it did so. How can we reconcile this topsy-turvy interplay of an infinite number of scales into our reality, and how might that look on a map? We'd love to see what you come up with. Send your maps of experience to us at Songpath, songpathuk at gmail.com. In the meantime, stay connected, follow your thread, and keep walking the Songpath.